0: Uh, God, we we love you. We thank you for your word that has been preserved for us. Um, it's remarkable that we get to be here together every Sunday. Um, we have family members, brothers and sisters across the world, who uh, would fight and quite literally do put themselves in harm's way to, to be with other believers to be able to, to have God's word in their hands and to to worship and to sing songs uh, because they're under the fear of persecution. So we are in a place where every single Sunday we get to come. We get to sing songs of celebration. We get to hear your word proclaimed. We can hold it in our hands and we can hear from you again. So thank you for the freedom we have in this country to be able to worship you, uh, to be able to come here today to, to hear from you. And God, we need just that. Um, through your spirit. Your people need to hear from you, not from me. Uh, I pray that I'd be a conduit of your grace to your people. Uh, Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the miracle of salvation, that we are saved, we're accepted, we're redeemed and purchased, not by any work of our own, but by the finished work of Jesus. And so I pray our our faith would be stirred to be more fully and wholly placed in him today, and that our lives would be conformed to his, his image day by day. It's in his name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles uh, and open to Acts chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 33 today. Uh, Wrestled a little bit with uh, the best way to preach this section because um, Acts chapter 10 through the middle of chapter 11 really are kind of one seamless story. But we're going to take 33 verses so y'all don't shoot me for being too long. So when we originally moved to North Carolina back in 2007, um, I'm a basketball fan, so I was aware of the significance of Duke and North Carolina basketball. But one thing I realized, you might have noticed this as well, is like you got to choose. Like when you move to North Carolina, you got to choose if you're Duke or North Carolina. You can't just like generally like both. You got to choose sides. And some of you may know this in other areas of life, like there's some pop culture examples, there's... Other sport teams, examples, i can look at the Gibsons. The Gibsons and I have Christ in common, but they love the Green Bay Packers. I love the Chicago Bears. And we could be enemies if it weren't for Christ. We have Christ in common. But there's other examples, too. You can think of them. There's a current battle on the greatest chicken sandwich. Is it the Lord's Chicken, Chick-fil-A, or is it Popeye's? It's not McDonald's. I can assure you of that. Is it In Sync or Backstreet Boys? I mean, some of you you wouldn't admit it right now but that's a that's been a point of hearty disagreement star wars versus star trek marvel versus dc all right starting to hit home a little bit coke versus pepsi sweet potatoes versus yams some of you like there's there's debate on this like you don't really know like i thought they were the same thing maybe they're not but there's debate on all sorts of silly things. Whatever side you pick, you have a particular aversion or distaste for the other. That's the opposite of what you have picked or what you like, what you prefer. And if you betray that side, it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that your hated rival would be someone that you had become partners with. And Acts chapter ten puts us in a place where we have to consider what the Bible calls the sin of partiality. That in the spiritual realm Like in our Christian life, and you see this in Acts chapter 10, because God deals with Peter on this issue, we see a struggle with the way in which personal preference and even prejudice can can move its way into the way we view spiritual things and people and their spiritual condition before God. And so, no greater chasm spiritually has existed than between Jews and Gentiles. You see that play down in Ephesians 2, where it talks about like one of the, the mega fruits of the gospel in Jesus' work is that he's torn down the, the dividing wall of hostility between these two ethnic groups and made them into one family in Christ. And so in this chapter, we have arguably the one of the greatest hinge points in this story, because the church is birthed and been focused on primarily through these first nine chapters, the the work of God building his church, this unique Jesus people in Jerusalem among the Jewish people. And chapter 10 is a significant kind of opening of the door for the gospel to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. You hear that word Gentile, it means anyone who's not a Jew. So all of us, despite whether you know it or not this morning, you benefit from this moment in history. Because God hasn't relegated his new covenant family just to those of Jewish descent. It's spread to the Gentile world and we are beneficiaries of this moment in church history in Acts chapter 10. So as we go to chapter 10, verse 1, here's what I want to encourage you to do. As you're trying to figure out how to apply this story to your life. Because this is more than just, and I've said this before, this is more than just a story about a church that once was. About some characters, characters who once were and we're just learning a history lesson. There's something that God wants to unveil in us that's relevant for our own spiritual lives right here, right now, through these words and through these characters. And Cornelius and Peter are those two people. So here's what I want you to ask, is where's the Cornelius in me, and where's the Peter in me? So I think there's probably shades of both present in our own spiritual perspective, and I'm Hope you'll kind of see what I mean as we journey through. But let's read, starting in verse eight. I'm sorry, verse one in chapter ten, and we'll go through verse eight. This is God's word. It says, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, who is, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, so we're gonna survey Cornelius just for a moment. So there's a pretty significant description of this non-Jewish man. So like his spiritual content of this section is pretty remarkable. So Cornelius was, was part of the Roman army uh, this, this Italian cohort that existed in Caesarea. And so he was, he was part of overseeing maybe some 300 to 600 soldiers in a, in a, in a moment in a city where uh, political dignitaries would come in from Rome to visit. And so he would be a little bit like the, the bodyguard station for those who would come in who were political elites uh, in Rome. And so he was a man of influence Um, he was a devout man, he was godly, he was pious, like in his behavior, his outward conduct, he was dutiful, Uh, he feared God. So we talked about this a couple weeks ago, what does the fear of God mean? To some degree it means seeing, seeing the the character of God and and responding in submission, to some degree. There's There's a seeing of God and who he is and responding in Submission And so there's a measure in his life where he saw the character of God and responded. So Cornelius would have been brought up in this pantheon of gods within Roman culture. This polytheistic, many gods perspective. And so he came up in that. But there was something about him. By the grace of God, he became sympathetic to and interested in the monotheistic, the one God religion of Judaism so he was known as a, as a God-fearer. And R.C. Sproul talks about how this category of person is one of four in the book of Acts. You have Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans, and then this category of God-fearers. And so Cornelius was a Roman. He was a Gentile who feared the God of Israel. There's many ways in which he became Jewish other than likely circumcision and maybe some lifestyle dynamics. But he prayed like a Jewish man. He gave alms to the Jewish people, primarily. He feared God. He prayed continually. This is remarkable, like spiritual resume. This would be said about anybody. You'd be like, wow, this is a pretty, pretty remarkable man or woman to have these things said about him. He feared God. He was charitable and merciful toward the needy. And to such degree that we see a little bit later in verse 22 that he was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. It's significant for a Jew for a Roman soldier to be commended by any Jewish person, much less have the reputation for the, in the Jewish nation nation as being a commendable man, but because of his generosity and his charitable nature it happened just that way. He was generous, like you fear God, he was generous, he was holy and Matthew Henry talks about it this way in commenting about Cornelius. It says, wherever the fear of God rules in the heart, it will appear both in works of charity and works of piety. Neither will excuse us from the other. So you can think of it this way. You, you can never say, I live a holy life, but I don't live a charitable life. You can never say, I, I live a charitable life, but I don't live a holy life. The two cars in the same spiritual train both exist. They exist together as part of the, the unique work of God in a human heart. And he prayed, like he prayed like a Jewish man, a spiritual disciplines at the, the ninth hour at 3 p.m., the customary hour for Jews to pray. He was praying. And in that moment, notably, both these men were encountered by God through visions in prayer. As they're submitting themselves to God, he was praying and, and he sees this angelic vision. His response is a little bit like Paul's on the road to Damascus. He hears the voice and He's like, what is it, Lord? Like, what is it you want from me? Here I am. What is it that you want? And the first thing that the, the angel says is your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before. God, it's a really interesting picture. Because if you can picture it, in Jerusalem, in the temple, Jews would go into the temple, they'd make various sacrifices, many of them burnt offerings, and the smoke from those offerings would symbolically waft out of the temple up to the presence of God, and so this is the picture here. It's like your your alms, your acts of mercy and charity, your prayers have wafted up to the presence of God. They've been heard by the God of Israel. They've been they've been determined to be an acceptable offering in the sight of God. And now in God's, God, God's good plan, he responds to Cornelius's spiritual longing through this angelic vision. And the angel tells him to go and to, to, to find Peter. We'll talk a little bit more that, about that in a second. But one of the notable things here that I want to commend to us, and just hear me on this, if you're a Christian in this room, this is significant. Because one of the things that did not happen is that God didn't preach the gospel to Cornelius through the angel. What God did is He sent, by way of the angel, He sent Cornelius to find a witness who would speak to him about Jesus Christ. And that's significant because that's the pattern of the Bible, it's the pattern of the book of Acts, is that God speaks the words of salvation, pointing people to Jesus through whom? Through sent witnesses. And that's you and I. Ambassadors for Christ who speak about Jesus Christ. And through that speech, God graciously grants life to those who hear. The angel gives instruction as to to finding Peter. Cornelius obeys. He sends two of his servants, a a devout soldier, to go to to Joppa to find this man, Peter, in verses 5 through 8. One of the things we see later is, is that Acts 11:14 14 confirms when the angel told Cornelius to send for Peter that, that Peter was to come to bring a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So there wasn't just some general way he was sending for Peter, but the invitation was, find Peter. He's going to bring back to you this message that will save you and all of your household. And keep that in mind as we kind of get back to this, or we get to this point where Peter and Cornelius have this encounter when they meet. Here's one thing I would say as we think about Cornelius' testimony in life is this, that neither religious zeal nor angelic vision can make someone right with God. I'm gonna repeat that. Neither religious zeal nor angelic visions can make someone right with God. It's Jesus Christ alone that can make someone right with God. And religion can only be fruitful if that religion leads you on a pathway to the life giver, to Jesus Christ himself. Any and all religion must lead to Jesus if it's to be fruitful. Notably, Cornelius is sent to a witness to hear the message of salvation. So let's pick up in verse 9. and Now we'll see Peter's visions. These really just kind of tandem visions happening just a day apart. God in his providence is governing all of this in order to bring about this open door to the Gentiles. Verse nine says this says the next day, as they were on their journey, and approaching the city, those that being sent by Cornelius, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry, and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it he fell into a trance, and saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds, All right, what in the world? This great sheet. So Peter goes to pray. Notably, he's praying just like Cornelius was. It was customary actually to go out on the patio, on the roof of your house to pray. And he went to do that. He prayed, and he falls into this unique trance. He's hungry, and God gives this vision of this giant sheet coming down from heaven. And on this sheet are creatures of every kind on earth. It's a a peculiar picture that God gave. So let me just take a minute to kind of unpack a little bit the significance of what Peter is seeing as a Jewish man. Because so I think it helps us to feel the gravity of it. So one commentator said it this way the distinction of meats was a sacrament of national distinction, separation, and consecration. When you look at the book of Leviticus in chapter 11, there's a whole chapter in the book of Leviticus dedicated to showing which animals are clean and which animals are unclean. It was part of the dietary restrictions for the people of God. And I want to read the end of chapter 11 to help us feel a little bit of the gravity of what Peter's saying, because his response is ridiculous, because he says, I'm not going to do what you told me to do. And we'll see why, maybe right here. So at the end of chapter 11, God, through his word, his law, has given all of these animals that are clean, and unclean. And this is the culmination of this chapter. God says this, says, for I am the Lord, your God, consecrate or set apart yourselves therefore, and be holy for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. And this is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may may not be eaten. So to a Jewish person, like the sight of these unclean animals would quite literally be repulsive There'd be this visceral response of like, oh, may it never be that I would be near to these type of animals. And that's what makes the next statement so jarring for Peter. He didn't just say, behold the animals. He says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Unthinkable for a Jewish man, for a Jewish person. But God says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And we can feel a little bit of sympathy for Peter, even though his words are... The dumbest you could utter to God Himself. No, I won't. We can feel a little sympathetic. Wow, well, I guess I kind of understand. He's like, Lord, may it never be. I've, I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. By no means, Lord. Now, all at once, everything Peter has known of the dietary laws and restrictions collide with this heavenly voice and they stand in defiance of everything He's known up until this point about these dietary laws. And so I want to comment on one thing here because there's, there's an important distinction to make because we can, we can be left with a little bit of a question mark of like, this seems just a little bit of kind of flippant of God to change the law. But there's a couple categories to the law. Like one would be what we think about with the Ten Commandments, like the moral law. So when we think of the Ten Commandments, those commands, that law is inextricably linked to the character of God. So if God changed that law, it would do damage to his character. But there's a whole different set of laws that you could call maybe historical, maybe even temporary laws like the dietary restrictions that are changing here by way of this new covenant people. God is doing a different thing with his people, and now he has determined things to be clean that used to be unclean. This new covenant family. These common things are clean, and we can say it this way: that what God deems clean is is clean. What the Lord determines to be clean is clean indeed. And that's what He says in response to Peter's objection. So, what God has made clean, do not call common. That's verse fifteen, you see it again, in eleven, verse nine. And we'll see it in just a moment, kind of show up in a different way as it relates to the Gentiles. So the fact that God repeated this statement three times, so this whole picture, this vision, the interaction, it happens three times. So you can feel just the resistance for Peter. God had to repeat himself graciously, I might add, repeated himself three times and the whole scene is repeated because it's so mind-boggling. It takes so much recalibration for Peter to realize that God is, has, is doing it and has done something unique. And Peter's going to see more fully in a moment what exactly that is. So verse 17, read there with me. It says, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed, he's confused, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, God speaks directly to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation or without distinction. That's the word we saw in Leviticus. Don't make distinction between you and them. Go down to them. I've sent them, and I want you to accompany them. So he says, I've sent them in the end of verse 20. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. So Peter's confused, he's trying to figure out what the vision means, and all the while, at this exact moment, these three men from Cornelius show up, calling to him from the gate. He would have known immediately they weren't Jewish. And so maybe even preemptively, the Spirit of God says, it's okay. Go down to them. I've, I've sent them. They're from me. Don't make any distinction. Don't hesitate as it relates to you being Jewish and them being Gentile, but go. Go and accompany them. And God was at work in Peter to embrace these new Gentile friends. He went down to them, he talked to them, he asked them the reason for their coming and unthinkably invited them in to be his guests. Summally shared a a table with them. If you could just imagine this scene, if you go back to the end of chapter nine, one thing you'll see, the very last part is we hear the last thing we hear in chapter 9 is that Peter stayed in Joppa with this guy named Simon the Tanner. So there's a little bit of like a whisper of what happens in chapter 10, and here's why. You see, you know what tanners do? They deal all day long with the carcasses of dead animals, which, again, would have been unthinkable for a Jewish man to be present with a man or with carcasses that were dead. It would make them unclean. It would make the man, the person defiled in the sight of God based on the law of the Old Testament. But not only we have Simon, sorry, Simon Peter, Peter the Apostle, the Jewish man. We have Simon the Tanner, the dead animal guy. Now we have these three Gentile friends who come along, and they're all together under one roof. Sharing a meal probably that night. They're staying in the same house until the next morning where they journey. <laughs> to go meet Cornelius. And so read with me the second half of verse 23. It says, The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So he takes some some Jewish Christians with him to be witnesses to what's ahead, which is notable. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. So Peter arrives at Cornelius' house. Notably, just like the night before that was strange and unbelievable, Peter enters in to the Gentiles' house. He comes into his house. And you can imagine, like, and be sympathetic to Cornelius. You're like, really, Cornelius? You're going to fall down and worship Peter? But just think about it. He had this angel vision, this angelic vision comes to him and like, hey, why don't you go find this man named Peter in Joppa and bring him to him so, so you can hear the message of salvation. It's a pretty significant deal. So no surprise, when Peter shows up, Cornelius Fire probably thinking, this guy is a pretty big deal. So he falls down. It's like as, as if to say there's a, a kiss toward him, like a nod of nobility, falls down before him to worship him. And it could have been in Peter's former shape, he could have just received the worship, right? Like the big fisherman's in town. He kind of receives the adoration of Cornelius, but that's not what he does. Like rightfully, he says, he says get up. And even his words, like if you can hear them, make this, make this distinction or the lack of distinction between Jew and Gentile. As he looks at Cornelius, the Roman Gentile, and he says, get up. He says, I too am just a man. I'm just a man like you. Like you and I, we're, we have common ground because we're both men and he didn't make distinction based on ethnicity or his Judaism compared to Cornelius being a Gentile. John Stott said it this way, he says, Peter refused both to be treated by Cornelius as if he were a god and to treat Cornelius as if he were a dog. So shortly after entering the home, Peter stands with Cornelius and he addresses all the gathered family. So you can picture it. If You can picture this room a little bit like what that scene would have been like. So Cornelius grabs his family, his friends, his soldiers, brings them to his house. Peter enters in after this moment where he tries to bow to Peter. He gets up. Peter and Cornelius walk into the room. And after answering the questions as to, to why he came, what he wants, what they want him to do, he, he comes into the room. And you could see him kind of peering at the the audience. And he says this. He's like, you know. Like, you know this is not right. As a Jewish man, I am not allowed to be in your presence. I'm not allowed to be in the presence of someone from another nation. It is unlawful for me to be here. And then he says this. He says, but God has shown me that I cannot, I should not call a person common or unclean. And we can look back at what we just read and be like, well, that's, that's not what God said. We didn't see any place in the vision where God said, don't call a person clean or unclean. We saw unclean and clean animals. And the picture is this. It's a little bit like that sheet, that sheet that reaches the four corners of the world, that those animals become representative of the fact that God saves, that he gathers up in this one bundle all the, the unclean and clean of the nations to be a part of his family. Peter says, I know I'm not supposed to be here, but God has done something new. He's shown me that I'm not to call unclean what he has made clean. As he looks in their eyes, not in the eyes of animals or beasts, into the eyes of the Gentiles. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. This whole process from beginning to end, God was confronting in Peter this sin of partiality, an attitude of spiritual favoritism, a prejudice against someone based on personal preference. Using someone's outward circumstance or appearance as the basis for their worthiness of his love or the love of God. That's what you see in James chapter 2 that James rebukes the church for. And he basically says this. He's like, hey, you tolerate pretty well when someone rich with gold walks into your midst. You give him the chief seat. How about when someone who's poor comes in? And he, he defines, in that moment, defines the sin of partiality that we're all given to be partial to, to make His favorites people in different categories of life or existence or circumstance or ethnicity or culture. So church family, I would just say this, like practically for our own hearts, is do, do we possess one heart to God and another toward the world? Are we tender to God in some ways but yet hard to the world? Are we warm to the, to God, but yet cold to certain people in the world. Poet Edwin Markham said it this way, and I I feel like it was worth repeating. He said, some draw a circle that shuts men out. Race and position are what they flout. us to consider like who are the gentiles to you who are the gentiles in your perspective my perspective because i would submit to you as much as we don't want to think it's the case there's some corner of our mind or our hearts and in that corner exists some category of person that we much like peter would be like by no means lord it can never be it should never be even because our hearts have become hardened. Like, who are those that we deem unclean, common, unfit for the family of God? Democrats, Republicans, people with various categories of addictions and struggles, maybe, or possibly certain varieties of criminals. Maybe even whole denominations or churches for us deemed unfit to be folded up in the family of God, amidst the unclean and the clean of the the nations, certain ethnicities or races, specific countries, cities, nations too far removed, who are the Gentiles for us? Is there any person you think of, even individually, that you're like, Lord, by no means, like, certainly not, certainly never. And if we've gotten to that place, then I would submit to you that our hearts have become hard in a way that God wants to soften, even through this moment in church history. If from the four corners of the earth, this giant sheet of redemption, north, south, east, and west, that God has collected up into heaven, this family of people, from every tribe and tongue and people group and nation, and none of us deserve to be there, not a one. It's only by the grace of God that we have been made a part of God's forever family. So we may draw a circle to shut certain men out, but the loving grace of God draws a circle to take them in. If you say it this way, it's like every, if you use the the picture of creeping things and beasts, like every creep, every beast of the earth is never too far removed to be rescued by the grace of God. As we think about maybe the hardness of our own hearts, it sets in at times. We do well to remember many sections of Scripture, but one that came to mind for me this morning was 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. It's one of the sections that deal with, like, here's all these categories of sin that exist in humanity. And we can categorize people in this way, deem is unfit for the kingdom of God. And there's a way in which they are unfit apart from the grace of God, but... Here's what I would say. As you read verse 9, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We might be tempted to stop there and just kind of co-sign it and be like, yeah, that's right. But here's what Paul does. Like he drives us backward into our own testimony and he says, such were some of you. This is your story. This is my story. Like we were broken we were sinful. We were destitute apart from Christ. He says, but such were some of you. And what happened? You were washed. You were cleansed. You're redeemed by the blood of Jesus. You're justified in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so all of us need to be confronted, that person within us that wants to war against the inclusion of the unlikely, those who don't share our preferences or convictions. I think this story rattles us because of the way in which in God's redemptive work throughout history, he always has and he always will include unlikely and undeserving people. It's the nature of the kingdom of God. This sheet from the four corners of the earth that picks up, gathers up people from every tribe and tongue and people group and nation. As we come to take communion today, let me just ask you to consider something. As we come come to take the Lord's Supper, we examine our hearts. And there's two different layers of examination I would encourage you to have. And one is to examine in your heart any form of religion that is void of Christ, Any form of piety and outward behavior that's void of the grace of God has somehow become your laboring for approval from God. Some pattern of charity that has lulled you into thinking your behavior is sufficient to rescue you. Because much like Cornelius, as good as it may get, it will never be sufficient to rescue you. It'll never be sufficient to make you right with God. Only Christ can do that. That's one area of examination. The other one would be just pride and hardness of heart toward any particular individual or group of individuals or categories of people that we feel are too far removed from the grace of God or unworthy of it. As we see here, like in verse 30, and we'll finish with this, Cornelius responds to Peter as Peter asks him, why, why have you sent for me? Cornelius said four days ago about This hour I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you've been kind enough to come. And listen to this part. Now therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have commanded by the Lord. And I wish I could just continue on. We'll see next week just the brilliance of this gospel presentation, what God does in the Gentiles. But if if you can imagine yourself in that room, and if you're a believer today, you're part of the number in this miraculous sheet that collects people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Cornelius, in that moment, as he was ready to hear the gospel, this message of salvation, he says, here we all are. And the presence of God is so precious that we're here in this living miracle. Someone once called like the first multi-ethnic Bible study in the history of the world happens right here in Cornelius' home. And Cornelius' faith is displayed by saying we're in the presence of God as the gospel is declared. And family, that's, that's what we do every time we come together. In the presence of God, we come to remember that Jesus is all we have and all we need. Communion reminds us, Lord's Supper reminds us that we don't have anything to bring to the table. It's all of Christ that we get to be accepted in this unique New Covenant family. So I want to ask you to take a minute to bow your heads, and I want you, I want you to examine your heart in both of those categories, just the, the presence of religion that's void of Christ and the presence of pride that has caused you to harden your heart off, to particular people in your life or categories of people in culture that in your, your eyes you've now deemed as unworthy or unable to receive salvation. So God, I even pray now for your help, the help of your spirit to probe our hearts. We don't like to examine our hearts. We don't like to sit still, but we sit still before you now asking that you would reveal to us the things that matter to you, the ways that our hearts have gone wayward and the ways that we need to be brought back. So would you search us now? Examine our hearts.